And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are, back. Uh, I'm completely over jet lag at this point. I've, I've readjusted my biological clock. This is this is still only a couple of weeks after World Fantasy. So, I'm back to work. Um, thinking man. it would be more fun to be at World Fantasy. <laughs> it would, it would. I mean, it was the most jet laggy convention of my entire life. I've never come back more jet lagged, which is probably a good thing. Uh, fun was had, things were done, people were, were were talked to, and yet, as is you know the, the nature of these things, about twenty percent of the way through it, you are starting to plan for the next one. And I uh-huh. think that we are all, in fact, we we're, were just before that we started recording, having conversations about plans for next year's Worldcon, because you and I will be at London for Worldcon, yes? We will be at London for Worldcon, and uh, the, the, the nice thing about the hiatus between conventions, I know there are lots of conventions, and there's actually one in Iowa I could have been at tonight, uh, but I just couldn't do that with my work. Well, well Ellen Datlow is guest of honor at ICON, which is a convention founded Oh, I don't know, 150 years ago by Joe and Gay Haldeman. It's, cool. it's a legendary oh, yeah, Midwestern it. regional con. Um, well, and well, it's, it's a lot of fun. But yeah. my point is this, that my way of looking at the year is, I think we mentioned this last Many week. times, all the time. Uh, yeah, okay. That, that Once World Fantasy is over, I have a six-month or a five-month break from conventions, and then I go to ICFA, and then, and then the cycle starts over and over again. Yeah. Um, but to get back to... World fantasy, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that when I was talking to people I know, my friends, uh, colleagues, other reviewers, the book I actually heard most about was not even a science fiction book and not a fantasy book. It was Hilled by Nicola Griffith. Yes. Who is has been one of, uh, one, one of these writers who hasn't written enough. She's written like five novels, yes. two absolutely stunning science fiction novels at the beginning of her career. I, th- yes. I think I still think Slow River needs to be rediscovered. It's still in print. Um, it is. And Hild is a novel about a 7th century uh, uh, a woman in Anglo-Saxon Britain who is. is who eventually became, I guess, St. Hilda of Whitby. Whitbury. Or, Whitby. Yeah, Whitby, yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and... Interestingly enough, the people who had read it, and I have not, uh, all were reacting to it as though it were a terrific new fantasy series in the in the uh, mold of uh, of George R. R. Martin. In other words, the everything that people said about it, apart from her, well, I don't know if her prose is brilliant in this novel because I haven't read it, but her prose has consistently been pretty brilliant in the past. It has. Um, so I really would like to read that and. My question is, and, and I know that you have uh, someone reviewing it for Locus, am I right? Yes, yes indeed. Cecilia Holland's reviewed it for us, yes. Okay. And Cecilia Holland is another example of what I'm talking about. Cecilia has been a longtime friend of Locus. She's very sophisticated about the world of science fiction. Um, we've had her on the podcast, haven't we? We have, yes. Okay. And she's very articulate. So there's obviously a kind of connection there between science fiction and historical fiction, which goes back decades. I mean, uh, Sprague de Camp wrote Roman stories. Uh, James Blish's After Such Knowledge, uh, which included The Case of Conscience, also included a novel about Roger Bacon. Mm. Uh, Stephen Baxter wrote his uh, Times Tapestry series, which started out as historical fiction about uh, Roman England and ended up as alternate world science fiction at some mm-hmm. point. So th- there's there seems to be... a a natural connection there. And my my question is, are science fiction and fantasy readers, and I'm guessing particularly fantasy readers who enjoy medieval worlds, um, going to pick up Hild and read it without worrying that it doesn't have a an overt fantasy element in it? I think they probably will. I think there's a very clear and readily understandable connection between f- historical fiction and science fiction and fantasy. I think... Uh, a lot of historical fiction shares the kind of background that fantasy readers recognize. You know, fantasy fantasy writers lift, particularly uh, Western European and you know, British or whatever, l- you know, landscapes to set mm-hmm. their stories in. They they pick up uh, 
particularly British and Western European mythology to use in their stories. And those things resonate in historical fiction for all sorts of obvious reasons, not the least that the mythology of the day wasn't mythology, it it was the practical beliefs of the time. So you're going to get Mm. connections in the kind of material that the writers want to talk about in historical fiction and in fantasy. Now, there are, of course, all sorts of variations in this. And when you get into the more overtly, I don't know, fantastical fantasy stuff, then that probably links less. But when you get into the George R. R. Martin stuff, which is heavily historical and has a small Mm. trace of magic, when you get into the Guy Gavriel K. kind of epic fantasy, which basically is an alternate history with little or no magic overtly in it. Right. It'll be suggested or implied. That links very directly with the kind of feel you get from reading historical fiction. And the other thing, and I think it's a a great connection between um, a book like Hild and science fiction, Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something I have to say, I was reading a short interview with Nicola Griffith just the other day. And she's been working on this book for a long time. This is her, what, her sixth novel and her first in six years. Mm, and she's written mysteries in between. Yes, she wrote two science fiction novels and then three mystery novels uh, uh, featuring Aude Torvingen, right. uh, The Blue Place and a couple of other books, which are very, very good, if you like, uh, mysteries. Mm. I read the first one. Yeah. Now, and, and, and a smattering of short fiction along the way, mm-hmm. basically. Anyway, But the, what she said was, she had become connected to the sense of place uh, around Whitby, where Hild comes from, and she became aware of the story of Hild. But there's very, very little information. Really, you know, you could apparently the, the way I get it, and I'm no expert, but the way I get it is you could write the entire history of Hild as it's known in a paragraph of text, basically. Um, I believe, thinking back to my English history class, which I had to take as an English major at the University of Chicago, mm-hmm. the uh, Venerable Venerable Bede, which was mm-hmm. the first, literally the first British historian, was the only person to write about her who was reasonably contemporary. Yeah. And it was you're right; it's like a half page. It's yeah. like here, here she is. There's um, very little information. Uh, she took part in the in writing the very first piece of English literature as well, and there's a few other little interesting things. But mm-hmm. what's interesting this is, with Nicola is she said, basically, I looked at this. I was fascinated with the story. There was almost no information. So I took the tools of a science fiction writer to try and build the story that became Hild. You know, she, she mm-hmm. asked all of the what-if questions. She researched the background as though it was science, I guess, as though it was you know, quite real. She, she, she learned everything she could, could about the period, about the area, about how people behaved. And then mm-hmm. she put a character in that and mo- that character and moved it through. Now, I think the commonality isn't that historical fiction is science fictional. It, the commonality is that the what-if question is very much common to historical fiction and science fiction. The what next? The how do I extrapolate and build this story? Because quite often, you know, you, you have a, at best, a, a framework of information about historical figures and historical mm-hmm. events. And fleshing them out into a novel takes a lot of what if. And that's a fundamentally science fictional thing to do. It's a science fictional skill. I totally agree with that. And I think that's happened with uh, some of the best historical fiction. The further back you go, uh, because when you start dealing with, uh, like Hilary Mantel's, when you're dealing mm. with a a per- period of history which is well documented, uh, that's one thing. When you're going back to the 7th century, which I gather is what uh, Hild, the, 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 the less information there is available on a particular figure, the more extrapolation is involved. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the more kind of, in, in, in addition to which, and I'm, I'm not having read the novel, I, I'm, I'm basing this on what friends of ours who have read it have said, that Hild herself becomes a science fictional observer. She's somebody who is brilliant, who notes the changes of the seasons, who knows what knows what happens to animals. In other words, she does what a very smart young science fiction hero does. She she draws conclusions. That's not too unlike Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, where you ba- essentially have a Sherlock Holmes character yeah. who it was, it was it was modern only in that he's drawing conclusions from observations rather than from belief. Um, if you go far enough back in history, another novel that uh, we've talked about recently is, uh, is is Kim Stanley Robinson's Shaman, mm-hmm. which you have really no historical record. You've got a bunch of cave paintings, yep. and that means it's completely speculative. So the argument could be made that if people like the term speculative fiction, uh, that term can encompass both historical fiction and science fiction. It could, yes. And there is always a class of novels that circulate 
around science fiction or can be seen as being related to science fiction mm-hmm. that arguably are, n- are not science fiction at all. You know, these are the, what, within Locus at least, we've called associational titles. So, I mean, right. Char- I, I think Shaman, there's a great question over whether it's science fiction or not. Uh, I think a novel like Hild, there's a great question over whether it's fantasy or not. I mean, right. I don't think it is, but I, haven't, I have to read the book, and I think this is an, another issue we'll just maybe discuss. We'd both like we'll to discuss that. it because there's that that need to understand where it fits in the context of both the field and in the career of someone who is really quite a major, if to some degree underappreciated writer. I mean, it's hard to call a writer who's won the Nebula and whatever else underappreciated, and she did win the Nebula for Best Novel for Slow River. Mm-hmm. Though that was nearly twenty years ago, it was nearly twenty years ago. Although some of the uh, waste management issues oh, yeah. in Slow River are more re- relevant now than they were then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, apart from the female characters, you know, finding herself. Uh, so she, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And I, th- I, I don't know exactly. I've not talked to Nicola about it. I did not see the interview we were talking about. I'm not sure why she turned to historical fiction, other than the fact that this character drew her. To, 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 to make up a story that somehow fits with That's the very much my story. impression of it. She was completely absorbed by that story and mm-hmm. drawn back to it. And I even, and I could be completely wrong here, but I th- I'm sure I saw something about saying that she was had more to write about the character, so there, there may well be a second book that's related. Uh, that's what I was told also, is that the, the problematical, the, the one person I was talking to, and I'm not sure I can remember who it was, uh, had the issue that, well, Hilda of, 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 of Whitby is, you know, one of the, if she's known for anything, if she showed up in, in Bede's ecclesiastical history, it's for having helped convert England to Christianity. Yes. And, you know, somebody who converts, somebody who becomes an evangelist converting a whole country to Christianity could be kind of problematical in, a, in terms of the science fictional way of thinking. And I gather that Hild ends before that really yeah. becomes an issue. Yeah. Um, well, I guess one, one of the things we should do is we should, and this is maybe the next topic of conversation for us, mm. um, we should maybe try and find the time to read this book and then revisit it possibly with Nicola uh, and with just Nicola see. What talking about. Yeah, I think that would be very interesting to do. Um, and then we can perhaps get back to one of our ongoing side bets because we like nothing better than handicapping awards and asking ourselves uh, whether this book is going to end up on the World Fantasy Ballot next year. Interesting question. Uh, and my guess is no. Um, my guess is people are going to look at it and say, I'd really like to put this on the world fantasy ballot, but it, and, and I, not having read the book, it's, it's one of these books that may have a trap door in it. I mean, it's, we've talked about this uh, a little mm. bit before. There are Cecilia Holland historical novels that involve magic or a series of Viking novels. Um, by the end of it involve a, a complete fantasy world uh, that this character gains access to. Gene Wolfe's Soldier of Sidon, uh, Soldier of the Mist novels. Uh, set in ancient Crete, um, they're, are they fantasy or science fiction because the characters believe in the supernatural beings that they apparently see? Yeah. Um, I don't think we had any problem with that because it was Gene Wolfe. So if something like Hild ends up on a world fantasy ballot, which it could because non-fantastic works have done that before, mm-hmm. then it will be on the basis of the fact that readers think, well, Nicola is one of us. Had yes. her novel come from somebody not in the field, had her novel come from a Hillary Mantel, it would have no chance. And in a year where Guy Gavriel Kay is guest of honor at the convention, and he mm-hmm. almost certainly will have a novel on the uh, Royal Fantasy right. ballot, I would be shocked if River of Stars wasn't on the on the ballot next year. Oh, it'd be it'd be astonishing if that didn't happen. So um, you know that would be interesting. Anyway, now this ties into one of our ongoing poor, poor, pitiful me whiny complaints, Gary. I think we should whine some. Yeah, because what we want to whine about is being insiders and gatekeepers and everything else, we are forced. There is a driving whip behind us that prevents us, you know, that makes us read stuff and doesn't give us time to read the things we necessarily want to, Gary. This is such an unconvincing whine, but anyway, try. Uh, I, I, well, I, but what we're trying to do is, 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 is gain unwarranted sympathy from listeners who think, Okay, you guys get to read novels month in, months in advance of which they come, when they come out, and and sometimes sometimes writers actually send you their manuscripts for comment. And okay, being insiders, but on the other hand, why haven't I read Hild? Why haven't you read Hild? Because we have all these 
absolutely fabulous writers sending us PDFs and manuscripts and that sort of thing, <laughs> and we don't always want them. We want them from some people, but not from everybody. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I know it's terrible. I, I, I'm uh, now distancing myself from you, whoever you are, on the other end of that podcast line. Um, actually, it happens very, very seldom. That the, and, and, and the people, there, there are maybe two or three people that actually send me manuscripts to comment on. I won't mention yeah. who they are, but I'm enormously oh, flattered. That but, yeah, that. but that's a separate issue, really. What you're really saying is that there is now so much science fiction and fantasy published, and it is so hard to keep up with the work of interest that it right. impacts on your ability to keep up with non-science fictional stuff. And as any number of our friends would exhort us to, you know, to, to do, there is, you know, we, we need to read outside the field as well to retain a fresh approach, to fulfill our interests, all those sorts of things. I mean, I know that I, when, when he's not buried in a book, I'm in, in writing a novel, I'm in touch with Guy K, which is not uh -huh. supposed to be an, an actual name drop, but he will recommend very fine novels and say, oh, you must read this. Or, or a friend of this podcast, James Bradley, you know, who was trying to get me to read A.M. Holmes's May We Be Forgiven, which is sitting here in my office. That's the thousand-page novel he told me about? Oh, I don't think it's a thousand pages. He, he recommended, okay, good example. James Bradley, who is, uh, I've decided, the Michael Durda of Australia. Very <laughs> distinguished. Well, he really is. I mean, he's... He, I've, I've That's great. No, I love his, it. No, he is, yeah. He's... Uh, and he, he, I can't remember the title, he recommended a thousand page book and I, we had an email exchange. We should talk, actually you should talk to James about this. And I said, <laughs> I can't figure out how to fit a thousand page book into a schedule that I have to have five or six books a month to review that have to be in the field. Yep. And, and he said, I, yeah, he said something along the lines of, I sometimes think I will never again be able to read a book free of, <laughs> just a free choice without having to do it for somebody. And, and, the real, and, and the real problem, this is the actual problem, you know, for anybody out there who is book blogging or is keeping up with the field and kind of wishes to get involved, and I understand mm -hmm. that because Lord knows I understand it, and there's, and there's a huge amount to take away from being involved, all sorts of personal rewards in terms of, you know, friendships and relationships and all that, but yeah. it will eat your time alive. It will dictate what you get to read, and you'll sit there with a copy of... Um, I don't know, Neptune's Brood by Charles Stross, and a copy of Hilled by Nicola Griffith and go, I need to read the Charles Stross because that's keeping up with the science fiction field, because that's one of the major novels of the year. Right. And as major a novel as Hilled may be, it's probably outside the remit of what we're doing. Which is a problem, because more and more the mainstream novels that use science fictional techniques or science fictional imagination techniques, which which Nicola says she does in this novel, mm. um, are more and more relevant to the field. In other words, when we say we have to read stuff that is science fiction, or fantasy is even easier, when we say we have to read something mm. that has a fantasy element in it, that, that justifies our reading it, then we're kind of uh, reinforcing barriers that are breaking down everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, by and large, you're not... Uh, Karen Russell's collection of short stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Yes. Well, okay, one of them's a vampire story. Most of them are not supernatural stories. They're not sure. vampire stories. They're Karen Russell stories. Uh, I haven't read Thomas Pynchon's Bleeding Edge, but even though it's supposed it's to probably be genre-related. Probably is. And the same thing for Dave Eggers' new novel, which is supposed to be of genre interest. There's a couple of them around mm -hmm. like that, uh, or at least interest. To, okay, of interest to people who are interested in reading about the future. Now, whether that mm -hmm. make equals genre interest we could go back and forth on but if those sort of books are supposed to be of interest i have to say gary not and i'm not proud of this i struggle to remember the last time i read a non-genre novel oh that's a good question that's a good well i no, i can I, I know exactly what it was but it's it's for for school reasons i read a carl hyacin novel mm -hmm. uh, no connection there at all but it, it dealt with environmental issues it was fun uh, I love Carl Hyacin, and what's my fact is the first Carl Hyacin novel I'd read. I'm five or six novels behind on him, uh, so it made me think. I, it's a, I I used to read these books just for fun, and I don't anymore. <laughs> uh, I would love to have read Wolf Hall. I would love to because uh, <laughs> yeah, I start I, yeah. even Cecilia Holland, who has rigorous standards about historical fiction, said that was spectacular. Yeah. I want to read Hild. I'd like to read Donna Tartt's novel, which looked like a Dickensian novel. Yeah, no, I don't want to. Well, I okay. You, you I, can. I'm no, not no, you somebody can. who looks down on mainstream fiction. 
See, what, what I do is I get recommendations from James and from Guy and from a couple other people. Uh-huh. And, uh, like, I'll even buy the books. It's like, I have to say, the AM Holmes book looks really interesting. Looks fun. Probably is, yeah. But that doesn't mean that I have a time to actually read it. And I'm trying to find time to keep up with, you know, all of the stuff. And it just exp- there's oh, just too much in a good way. You know, it's like. I'm struggling to find time to keep up with the discussion about the field, never mind interest myself in these other things that I'm interested in. And I, I spend all my time chasing stuff down. This is poor, 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 it's terrible. Um, chasing stuff down for you know, short fiction for the best of the year, which I'm working on now. I've just been sending out contracts mm-hmm. for the first rounds of stories for it. And I'm just aware of the fact that, you know, the stuff comes out everywhere. And I'm always looking to keep up with it. Uh, I mean, I only read. I mean, okay. When I, before I became a year's best editor, I probably read seventy to one hundred novels a year. That's impressive. That's impressive. I would now read a dozen. Okay. And I'm going to say I'm probably in the fifty to seventy range right now. Yeah. Because there are a lot of books of short stories, but my, I, I guess what concerns me is that we have said repeatedly on this podcast, and we have said uh, some sometimes in print. That the barriers are breaking down and yet by saying okay we have to confine our discussions to these particular kinds of things there has yeah. to be something that crosses a line into fantasy in a historical novel there has to be something that is speculative in i don't know a mainstream novel uh, that that permits us to discuss it and that seems hypocritical to me on well, one hand we're saying where are we discussing it though i mean i mean to be fair right we're discussing well, the context in, in within the pages of a one particular science fiction magazine and oh, in the true. context of the, oh, God, 52 hours of podcast we do every year. I guess what I'm thinking is that in the podcast especially, the magazine is, Locus is the news magazine of the science fiction and fantasy field. And science fiction and fantasy is a big part of yes. that. And many of our readers want to see what's going on. And there's more than enough science fiction and fantasy to keep everybody busy. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the problem is the, the more the discussion in the field, not only including our magazine, but in blogs, other magazines and so forth, the more that discussion confines itself to things that is traditionally definable as science fiction and fantasy, the more we're missing the blurring edge, which is one of the most crucial things that's happening in the field these days. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think it was Jonathan McElmont, friend of this podcast, was saying yesterday, we go on and on about blurring boundaries and everything else, and we always have. It's not new. Right. Is, is there really anything intelligent to say about that anymore? Um. Yes. Okay. Uh, good. What, Jonathan? Say uh, it, please. Uh, I'm now prepared. Uh, the, the, the class the, is in the, session. The problem, Lecture away. Let me talk about Gary. Okay, I, I will go back to what you said that Nicholas said in the interview about writing Hild. Uh, blurring boundaries in terms of content has been going on for a long time. Okay, there's mainstream the mystery fiction can be science fiction, horror fiction. I mean, the, the seminal work of modern horror fiction is also the seminal work of modern science fiction, Frankenstein. So those boundaries, that's old news. That's 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 nothing uh, that's very interesting. When you talk about a science fictional mode of imagination, when you talk about using the techniques of a science fiction writer to extrapolate a historical period. Yep. When you talk about world-building techniques that are derived from the techniques of everybody from E.R. Edison to J.R.R. Tolkien to George R.R. Martin, and you use those world-building techniques to reconstruct a world that, in Stan Robinson's Shaman, for example, we have no real evidence of, then you're talking about science-fictional techniques that produce non-science-fictional works, or fantasy techniques that produce sure. non-fantasy works. And the more that... That, that, that's a different kind of boundary blurring. That's that's a kind of um, mode of imagination. And the more that mode of imagination begins to enter the mainstream, the more I think we ought to pay attention to it. Because if anything means a kind of victory, it's that. Possibly so. But devil's advocate question, we allow ourselves that these are science fictional techniques that are being used. Mm-hmm. Are they actually science fictional techniques at all? I mean, let, let's let's be kind of clear about this with ourselves. Um, is asking what if, a, 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 you know, fundamental only to science fiction, or is it fundamental to literature and to how people approach telling stories? Is um, building a world, I mean, historical novels and stories have been around mm-hmm. as long as anything else, 
as long as yeah. it's science fiction. Uh, what was the was there still that same element of world building in th that fiction before science fiction existed? I am. I, I want to sort of ask the question: Are we just patting ourselves on the back about this, or are these techniques legitimately, uniquely ours? I don't know that they are. I think that maybe science fiction derived them from other uh, earlier forms, but the fact is that there that this is an area that we don't discuss. I mean, one of the problems we've had for decades, and it's, it's, it still irritates me, is to try to define science fiction in terms of content, in terms of yeah. what happens in the narrative, rather than in terms of how the story is yep. written. Uh, my guess is that science fiction has always learned a lot from historical fiction, yeah. uh, from speculative fiction. And that goes back probably to Sir Walter Scott, who was writing novels about medieval England and Scotland um, you know, in the early 19th century, and making a lot of it up. Yeah. Uh, but making it up based on, you know, what known facts there were. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, in other words, I think that uh, when we talk about blurring of boundaries, we ought to talk about something about how books are written. Science fiction writers can approach things in a certain way. I would make an argument that, uh, not again, not having read Hild, but having read Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, there's a lot of science fictional thinking in that. Okay, yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, he, he's dealing with a character who, uses the scientific method essentially to to apprehend his world. He becomes a detective, he becomes a Sherlock Holmes kind of figure, but you know what what unfolds in the novel becomes larger and larger in yeah. scale, which is a classic movement of a science fiction novel, the opening out and then opening out up to another chapter and then opening out even bigger at the very end. Um, so yeah, I don't think science fiction invented that technique, but I think science fiction has become the characteristic mode of that technique, which is now also reappearing in other kinds of Fiction. I think that Michael Chapin. Here's, here's a good example: uh, the alternate, uh, the alternate history. I'm getting a sense that the alternate history is going the way of uh, time travel. Okay. And in, in the sense, it's just okay. Anybody can have it. Sure. It doesn't belong to science fiction anymore. Uh, Philip Roth can write an alternate history of World War II, and nobody, nobody minds that it's it's an alternate history, even if he mistakenly thought he had invented the form. Um, we mentioned earlier that time travel doesn't belong to science fiction anymore. It's a technique, it's a narrative technique that's out there for romance writers like Audrey Niffenegger and thriller writers like Lauren Bucus, but it's just out there now. We don't own it. And the less we own it, the more I think we ought to acknowledge the way these techniques can be used in what is frequently considered mainstream fiction or historical fiction or sure. thrillers or whatever. Let me ask you a possibly unrelated question. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time, and by we I mean people who talk about science fiction, I mean science fiction critics, whatever else, our very good mm. friend John Clute, who we spent some time with in uh, London, mm -hmm. uh, spend a lot of time coining terms to attempt to describe what's going on in science fiction. Do those terms clarify or do they obfuscate? Are they about better understanding what's going on and finding a clear way to describe it, or are they about trying to claim something and give us legitimacy in a particular space where we don't necessarily deserve need it. I don't think it's trying to claim legitimacy. I think trying to claim legitimacy is what we used to do 50 and 60 years ago. I mean, yeah. the histories of science fiction, you know, the early histories of science fiction that all began with Lucian of Samosata and the voyages to the moon from Roman writers and that sort of thing. There was an anthology, um, the classic example of this actually is an anthology by August Derleth called Beyond Time and Space. Plato is a science fiction writer in that. Francis <laughs> Bacon is a science fiction writer. Jonathan Swift, uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, that was trying to claim legitimacy, even though nobody could seriously say that anybody writing for Hugo de Gernsback had ever heard of mm -hmm. Cyrano de Bergerac's Voyage to the Moon or Francis Godwin and that sort of thing. Um, I think we've... That's still there. There were things you know, seven, eight hundred years ago that looked vaguely like science fiction, so we can say they're science fiction. Um, I think what we're doing now, I think what people like Clute are trying to do is to identify literary and imaginative, more than literary, imaginative techniques that science fiction has developed over a period of decades that has yeah. now been found useful by a much wider variety of writers. Yeah. Uh, and I think they can, and I think that science fiction ought to celebrate the fact that some of its tropes are being um, sure. Uh, absorbed by the mainstream, rather than a kind of 
crabby, like, oh, they, you know, <laughs> they've stolen our marbles and go to, gone to play in their court. Uh, well, particularly thing. since the truth of it is we probably stole their marbles and at best transformed them a bit, then gave them back. You gave them back, absolutely. Uh, uh, science fiction wants to be accepted, but when it's accepted, people complain about the fact that the most popular novels are the ones that get the most literary respect, ranging, ranging from, from, from Doris Lessing down to uh, Lauren Bucus, are, are not reviewed as science fiction. On the other hand, if you go back 20 and 30 years and look at editorials, you look at books by people like Lester Del Rey, you look at um, mm. the uh, ideals of science fiction, was that someday we won't be reviewed as science fiction, we'll just be <laughs> regular fiction. Well, now that they've got it, they don't want it. I mean, come on. Well, that, hey, hey, come on. That, the, the kids are always like that, aren't they? Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, on one hand, I can't blame them. I, I understand it. But I don't know. See, I look at things and ask myself, I talk to you know, friends who are, who are critics and everything else, and they use a language that nobody else uses to discuss science fiction. I mean, when we were uh, in the UK, probably eight, ten times I heard somebody refer to Fantastica, which is John mm -hmm. Flute's coinage, right? But I've never heard yeah. anybody else ever use it outside of that context. Um, it's it's a question <coughs> as to whether a specialized term will catch on. I think it's a useful term. Why? Because prior to that... Uh, when I was talking about, when I try to explain to somebody outside our field what I do, and I say, okay, because I, 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 I read a lot of science fiction, a little bit less fantasy, some yeah. horror fiction, some magic realism. All this thing together is what I used to call the fantastic, mm -hmm. fantastic literature. And that's a pretty clunky term. And fantastica seems to coalesce a little bit better. It seems to be something more than just anything that's fantastic includes definition of it is fairly simple works which are received to be fantastic uh, you know by their readers uh, whether that's supernatural fantasy or or, or, uh, or scientific uh, extrapolation so mm -hmm. I, th I think it's a useful term because we don't have another term that that does the same thing there have been other proposals there was uh, super genre that was yeah. one that was around for a while uh, mega genre something that encompasses all of the stuff that we do. And the reason I think that's legitimate is that science fiction readers, not entirely, but there's a huge, significant overlap of science fiction readers and fantasy readers and horror readers. Yep. Um, and so, and, and, and more and more, the fiction that's coming out in this field crosses those boundaries. I mean, if you look at uh, what we were talking about, Peter Watts' The Things, which yep. is a very popular, it's, it's a, allusion to a horror movie, but it's also an allusion to a science fiction story. It's also a science fiction story written by a biologist who can make more sense out of the original. So it does all those things at once, um, and you can say that's science fiction, but you can also say it's horror. Yeah. Um, and zombie fiction, a lot of it looks science fictional because it's post-apocalyptic, but it's really horror fiction. So it's helpful, it's useful, I think, to have a term that encompasses all these things that people like us read or talk about. Yes. Um, I think you're right. There are other terms that have become very, very trendy in academia that are not as meaningful as people think they are. I mean, the most popular one, which has been picked up by everybody from Brian Atterbury to Ursula Le Guin, is, is Darko Subin's Cognitive Estrangement. Yep. Um, sounds great, but until you start thinking, well, Okay, estrangement is something a lot of literature does. Yes. And cognitive means thinking. Can you recognize how you're estranged? Big deal. Yes. Um, uh, so <laughs> I, I agree. Criticism, having been guilty of this myself, having been guilty of being an academic and written books and and, and so forth and so on, criticism can obfuscate. It can create barriers to understanding what's really going on, and I think that's. Uh, Oh, here's another example. Uh -huh. Another example from uh, very popular in literary criticism. It's also been used. Um, I don't know who actually. It's, it, no, Samuel R. Delaney. Chip Delaney came up with the concept, and it's been picked up and carried along by almost everybody since, including Ursula. That science fiction represents the literalization of metaphor. Yeah. That sounds great. Those are big words. I mean, she turned on her side means she could mean she turned on her side with a switch. The problem with that is if you try to find real-world examples of it, most of them aren't there. Yeah. You can uh, write a, a, a story about uh, – you, you can write some kind of allegorical story yeah. or like uh, Gulliver's Travels. But by and large, science fiction doesn't do that. 
But saying that science fiction does that makes it sound more legitimate in the world of lit crit. And that's one of the things that the first, I'm going to say, 30 or 40 years of science fiction being absorbed into academia was trying to make it sound respectable by using really highfalutin terms like cognitive estrangement and literalization of metaphor, because all that makes science fiction look like other literature. And the point we should have been looking at all these years is how it's actually different from other literature. Maybe that's something we should be looking at from here on in. I think think the same thing's true with fantasy, which has a much longer history than science fiction does. Um, I've been told by people... uh, Actually, actually, this is something that Jim Gunn mentioned to me in an email that, you know, they've started doing neurological uh, sort of PET scan tests that indicate that uh, different parts of the brain light up when you're reading science fiction than when you're reading realistic fiction. I don't know how far that's gone along, and I tend to be very, very skeptical of literary critics, literary critics or theorists pretending to be neurologists. Yeah. Uh, but the fact is, I think there is something different about science fiction. And I'm not sure we've ever defined clearly what it is. Um, and the fact that the science fiction writers haven't ever defined clearly what it is meant that eventually the academics are going to come in and make up their own terms and confuse things even more. Because that's what ac- a- academics do, you know, sort of, because they're just useful. You know, the most interesting science fictional conversation I think I had all trip to the UK was? We were talking to an unnamed friend of this podcast about writers who have proven to be the the most prophetic science fiction writers of all time. And and normally when we talk about Uh forecasting the future, we talk about, I don't know, Asimov and Clark and Heinlein. Yeah. You lost me? I lost lost you for a moment on on, uh, Skype, but I... Can hear you on the iPad when I turned it up. Okay, I think you're. We're still. I'm still. Okay, no, we're still going. Okay. Let me just, let me just see if I'm still getting. Okay, now I, can, I can hear you uh, through Skype, and I'll just double check that the recording. So I have to go through and cut this out now, Gary. Thanks. Okay. Where did it go? Me, you were beginning to, to when it broke up on my end. You were saying. Yeah, still going. The unnamed friend of the podcast that we talked. Yeah, yeah. To. Was 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 basically talking about how maybe we are looking at the wrong writers as having been the most prophetic writers in science fiction. So, for example, Clark gets a lot of credit for having forecast the, or for having, uh, you know, predicted the satellite. Right. And there are various other examples we'll talk about, Werner Vinge and computer technology and whoever may have inve- looked at desktop computers or whatever else. But you could argue that writers like J.G. Ballard, Philip K. Dick, and R.A. Lafferty are actually the kind of writers who most accurately predicted the kind of world we live in. I mean, I was taking a look just yesterday again at R.A. Lafferty's Slow Tuesday Night, uh-huh. which is a almost farcical story about a world wh- where cities are you know, start getting built at like sunset, are built during the night and torn down by the next morning and then rebuilt the next day. And that happens every seven, day ongoing. Seven different careers by 10 in the morning. Exactly, exactly. But Lord, that's the world we live in more and more, isn't it? I think that's that goes back to the point that uh, why we need to rethink science fiction, and and, and J. G. Ballard is the other one that yeah, yeah. Uh, comes yeah. in because the, the, these people who make the, the, and these are literary inventions, these are wild sort of wild and crazy ideas, and you're right, they kind of work. Uh, they work more likely as often, if not more often, than the sort of rigid extrapolations. Okay, Clark thought about this. There's this business about going back into science fiction history and and picking up, okay, Murray Leinster discovered the internet and a logic named Joe in 1945. That was, as far as I could tell, a completely random pulp idea story he threw out and he thought it'd be really cool. It wasn't wasn't thought out particularly well. But the people who imagine what where the culture is going in terms of the way people think and the way people interact with one another and the kind of alienation that Ballard wrote about or the kind of, um, uh, you know, hyper-acceleration in, in, in that uh, Lafferty story, I think you're right. I think that, by and large, the stories that read as most contemporary today are the ones that weren't trying to extrapolate in science fictional terms at all. Uh, Cordwainer Smith seems as new as ever because there wasn't anything in Cordwainer Smith that... Well, 
which, predicting the future. Which then suggests that in some ways the least interesting science fiction is science fiction that's focused on predicting the next technical or technological change. It's changes in society and changes in how people interact that become the most interesting aspects of a story or, or, or of science fiction. Well, uh, you can look at it both ways. I mean, one good example of um, a future technology that just didn't work, was never a very good idea, was the roads must roll. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it didn't happen. Nothing even like that happened. The closest, we've, the closest we've got to that are these long automated walkways in airports. Yeah. Uh, it's simply not going to happen. The story still works as a, I think it works very well as a kind of labor relations story, yeah. which is what it's really about. But the technology in it was just... Off the wall, and it, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't seem to me particularly interesting at all. I think that Heinlein, um, at his best, would look at issues like politics and labor relations and and gender relations and so forth. But his technological imagination, I didn't think, has really amounted to that much. Yeah, I tell, I'll tell you. I mean, this is sort of j going j jagging all, all over the place but one of the most su surprising con uh, discussions i've had since returning from england was talking with a local bookseller who's a good friend and uh -huh. he was saying that they now his, his shop now carries the full range of uh, golan's masterworks they've got hundreds and hundreds uh -huh. of books that they, that they carry uh -huh. and asimov is becoming one of their better sellers now really uh, they recently issued a hardcover edition of The Gods Themselves, and they've, public, they've sold more copies of that book than they have of the new Al Reynolds. That's interesting. What would cause that? I mean, there has to be some word of mouth or something going on about that novel. Well, amongst other, well, no, it's just it's been recently re-released. It's in the masterworks, so it gets legitimacy, and people are looking for things like I used to read Ian e M. Banks, but there are no more Ian e M. Banks books to read. What will I read? And you're given maybe a Ken McLeod novel to read because there are political similarities. They're both Scot Scots, mm -hmm. uh, and then you begin to look elsewhere, and Heinlein gets less tra traction, I think, in a modern world because of how does one put it politely? Some of the more uh, eccentric approaches to gender and sexuality in his books, whereas yeah. the rather stilted, what could be seen as a stilted language in Asimov becomes actually transparent and accessible. Well, transparency is one of the things that Asimov boasted about, and I suppose you could make an argument that the gods themselves was his most mature work. Yeah, uh, and it does deal with interesting, um, more more interesting characters than most of what it yep. had created before. But again, it's not something that uh, I think extrapolatively is is particularly appealing. It's just it's, it's a good adventure story. It's a good suspense story with the fate of the universe at stake. Well, what more do you want? And what more do you want? It's a good. It's, it's, it's fine. I'm not sure that I Robot particularly holds up anymore. I'm not sure that any Robot stories hold up anymore. And yet, um, we're, you know, there are new ones being written all the time. They are, but, the, but but if you look at the ones that are interesting, you look at the things like, um, uh, well, we had Rachel Swirsky on a few weeks ago yeah. talking about Eros Agape Philippa. Um, is that the, that's a robot it, story, yeah. Eros Philia Agape. Okay, well, it's the three well, Greek yeah. words. Yeah, yeah, story. yeah. Um, she does a very interesting thing using a robot as a kind of way of approaching uh character issues and issues of freedom and self-determination and, and what you want to do. The idea that we're going to have uh, clanking robots washing our dishes, which was a commonplace in the mm -hmm. science in the 40s, uh, people don't look at that anymore. They don't look at that as a possible future. They look at that as a kind of quaint um, um, alternate future from some time in the past. And I think that sort of thing has appeal. It does. I mean, I am beginning to see stories where people begin to wonder what happens when your re refrigerator becomes self-aware. Uh, or the the, the self-aware house stories are, are mm. certainly still out there, and the house security system taking over your life, that sort of thing is uh, is possibly plausible. But there's only so far you can go, go with that sort of thing. Um, and I think the point that we're kind of implying through all this is that science fiction has moved away from Let's simply guess what the future might be, and to let's see what we can use the future. Let's yeah. see how we can use these ideas to craft interesting kinds of fiction. Um, you know, there are people who are even writing uh, alternate. Uh, th th this is not new at all. I mean, 
the people who are kind of writing alternate presents because they want to go back to the mode of imagination in the past and, and see what that plays out like in the future. I think Lobby Tidar has done some of that sort of thing, but it goes all the way back to Harry Harrison's a transatlantic tunnel. Yep. In other words, past futures are interesting because they're alternate presents. Yes. Um, that's a legitimate form. It is. Uh, it just it just has nothing to do with what the real future will be like. Well, no, but that's all right. No, it's it's fine. I mean, anything the the the, the I, I've never been able to track this down, but I remember reading in graduate school a, uh, an interview with E.M. Forster of all people, who was asked about the responsibility of the novelist, and he was talking about realism and this sort of thing because Forster had written at least one classic science fiction story, The Machine Stops. Yeah. And. He said in this interview that the responsibility of the novelist was to get away with it. <laughs> and I, th I thought that was probably the smartest thing I ever heard said about fiction. Yeah, yeah it kind of covers most of the angles, yes. I mean, yeah, if you can, if you, if you can write a, a kind of, uh, well, the whole steampunk thing is, is, is about getting away with it. It's about, okay, let's reinvent Victorian England in a thousand different ways, and we'll project some of those into the present. Uh, we'll we'll do alternate worlds. I'm reading the third volume of Ian McDonald's uh, Everness uh, series now, and it's okay. you know endlessly inventive. None of it uh, outside of the very 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 basic concept of Everett's many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Nothing much to do with science fiction in it, but it's got giant dirigibles and it's got this one has uh, evolved dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you can see it's. It's a good story. It's a lot of fun, and all he has to do is get away with it. He does not have to make me believe that there's an alternate world out there somewhere with dinosaurs which have evolved 65 million years of technology and therefore are billions of times more intelligent than we are. Okay. I don't buy that, but I'll buy it for the sake of the story. Okay, if all you have to do is get away with it, mm -hmm. is getting the definition of get or the sense of getting away with it an individual assessment? You know, in other words, do you get away with it with for me, but maybe not for you? Uh, is is the response we see from some science fiction critics that some science fiction is backwards looking, is nostalgic, doesn't confront dated, you know, current issues, da 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 da? Is that not getting away with it for a particular group of people, or is it failing to address some fundamental mission of science fiction? I don't. Uh, yeah, the problem I have with that is the notion that science fiction has a fundamental mission. Yeah. Um, when somebody um, attacks a popular writer uh, for being simplistic, um, in effect, uh, they're attacking the readers of that writer who enjoy that simplistic fiction mm -hmm. and saying, well, you shouldn't be reading science fiction this way, or science fiction belongs to us. I, I think they're, and we've, we've talked about the number of sub-sub-sub-genres sub and uh, the, the blending of genres and that sort of thing, that... No, science fiction doesn't belong to people who believe it has a mission, and it doesn't belong to people who think it's just fun. I mean, remember, there are lots and lots of readers out there who, whose entire reading in science fiction, I am wagering, consists of Star Wars and Star Trek novels. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, the fact that those novels sell so much more than anything else, and some very good writers that we know, uh, friends of ours, have written some of those novels. Yep. Uh, are they selling out? Are they, are they not trying to write a serious novel? Uh, my sense is a little bit of both. Some some people I know who have written novelizations or or uh, novels based on a franchise have figured, okay, I'll type pages over the weekend. It'll yep. be easy and it's nothing. Others have really worked at making serious novels out of these things. So if somebody like, let's say, a, a, a Karen Travis uh, writes a serious Star Wars novel, yep. I think that's what she's writing, uh, and puts a lot of effort into it and writes a good novel. Mm -hmm. It may not particularly be something that crosses my field of attention, but the readers of Star Wars novels might be getting a better novel than they would otherwise I'm get. I'm sure they would be. I mean, is that what happens when Steve Baxter and Al Reynolds write Doctor Who novels? Uh, that could very well be what happens when uh, when they write Doctor Who novels. Uh, uh, our friend Sean Williams has written uh, Star Wars novels. Yes, and has, has just got a rather well-received new science fiction novel out called Twin Maker. Excellent. Which, so, and we should talk to him on the podcast sometime soon. We should. We should actually talk to him about that. We should talk to everybody on the podcast sometime soon. All of them. Well, I think all I, the people. One of the things I think about: we have a bias on this podcast, which has been pointed out to us more than once, of being a bias toward literary 
science fiction, literary fantasy, things that may be science fiction or fantasy. Yeah. Um, and and that's absolutely true. We don't talk uh, uh, to people who write Star Wars novels in general. We don't talk to um, the 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 people who like yep. to read endless series of, of, of fantasy novels in, in, in the world. Partly that's because I don't read enough of that stuff to keep up with them and talk intelligently. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not legitimate. I think when you say when you say science fiction is failing its mission, um, then I think that could be true if somebody like uh, a oh I don't know, it's picking names out of there. If somebody like a Paul McCauley or a Gregory Benford or a mm -hmm. Steve Baxter sort of gives up and says, okay, we're just going to write the same thing we wrote 30 or 40 years ago, and we're not going to try to do anything new anymore, and we're not going to try to stretch anymore, that they have somehow failed their promise. I think you can say that any writer may have failed his or her promise. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, you have to think of writers that don't want to be trapped in a promise they made 20 or 30 years ago. They might want to write historical fiction for a while. They might want to write, um, you know, uh, Doctor Who novels for a while doesn't yeah. mean they're not taking themselves seriously. That's true. No, I think that's true. I don't have anything to add to that thought, but I, I think it's true. We are getting I mean, slowly can, towards the end of our time. We're almost at the end of our time. Well, we're getting there. We're, we're about eight or ten minutes away. I mean, I, we we have rather sensibly, I think, kept to our hour or so over the past year, and I think it has served mm -hmm. us and our listeners well. So we should keep it in mind. I, I guess I have one other unrelated thing, and do we want to talk about the issues surrounding this year's World Fantasy Convention, Gary? There were issues. There were many issues surrounding this year's World Fantasy Convention. Um, I guess we probably ought to address a number of them. I don't know which of them actually played out. Um, my experience of the convention, I was on two panels, I had lunch and dinner with friends, and as a trip to Brighton, it was fine. Oh yeah, sure the issues of accessibility, uh, of, of, of some arrogance apparently in the administration of it, of uh, increasing the size of the convention, of charging for coffee classes, all that sort of thing, um, seemed to create quite a bit of discomfort. And there were other things which I only learned about afterwards. Yeah. Well, Not having experienced yeah. it firsthand, I don't know if I can complain about it as legitimately okay. as others can. Okay. Let's take a, a slight step back and, and contextualize our own position if you like we are mm. simply two professionals in the in the science fiction and fantasy field who enjoy going to world fantasy because it is primarily a professional event not because right. we don't love having readers there or don't want to interact with readers but because it gives us a chance to see people that we wouldn't otherwise in a, in a particular context and interact yeah. kind of professionally right now taking it just on that level i have to say the convention was a mixed success there were more people in attendance by far if, if the numbers that I hear are correct and they may not be but I heard numbers as high as 1400 um, if that's true then that explains why the, the the feel of the convention was somewhat different the more troubling mm -hmm. issues though and these I guess we can only address as any one of well any two of the 1400 attendees in the convention with no specific right to it are addressed I think quite intelligently and articulately on Cheryl Morgan's blog at okay. Cheryl-Morgan.com longtime friend of this podcast where she talks about some significant issues I mean there are issues to do with accessibility at the convention you know I think we've now reached a point with conventions where we expect events to be accessible to all possible members of the convention and a number of right. people were rendered incapable of accessing you know, parts of the convention because of because of venue choice because of venue yeah. choice and that has to sit with the convention board and the convention committee and I guess for those who haven't heard us go on about this at great length World Fantasy is somewhat different from a lot of other conventions a board owns World Fantasy and they they basically contract out to a committee to run the convention the, con the convention run, you know, that group runs it in, in accordance with a set of guidelines and the board doesn't have a lot of hands-on in right. in running it, but you know they, they do influence it, particularly in things like you know the awards must be on Sunday afternoon, uh, there must be a si mass signing on Friday evening, uh, there can't be any comics or other kind of stuff in the dealers room. It has to be primarily books or stuff that has been decided to be art, even though they changed that somewhat this year because I saw T-shirts on sale. 
<laughs> but the more serious things are, I think, I mean, that, that's neither here nor there. There was a, a very poor tone to a lot of the, the, the communications from the convention, I thought. That comes and goes, I guess. That's a, that's a odds of who's involved. But the accessibility was an issue. There's a lot more harassment at this convention, it sounds like. There are a number of cases being, of you know, people complaining. That's a great concern. Uh, there was gender imbalance in all sorts of places, particularly on panels. And uh, I know that I had one or two conversations with friends of the podcast, and I won't name them here because I don't know whether they would want to be named, who were very concerned about this sort of thing, where they felt greatly disenfranchised from the convention and marginalized by the event because of their own concerns to do with things like panel parity, things like you know accessibility, things like charging for events that you don't normally charge for, things like limiting... Uh, or you know, changing the limit on the number of panels that people can be on, which sounds like a really minor internal convention thing to be worried about. I mean, normally World Fantasy lets you be on one panel. But the great value of that, I think, is it presents a broad, a great, greater chance for a broad spectrum of opinions. And there's a really fascinating group of people at that convention. You could have put together a convention program that better leveraged their interests and their topics of conversation, whatever else. And that was a slight... That was that was that was mis, you know you know, mis, you know unfortunate, but I think if you read well, through, through the comments that follow on Cheryl's blog post on this subject, mm-hmm. you would see that you know there are people talking about being harassed, be, you know in, encountering ooh, negative responses to their their queries, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, stuff is what concern. Heard, yeah. And what I've heard in talking to people um, afterwards, just having dinner with a few people the other night, is uh, the that a, a lot of the panels were really unimaginatively designed and oh, yeah. and were actually pretty dull. Uh, I'm, I had the feeling at least one of the ones I was on, I, did, I have no idea why I was on too, but one of them was actually pretty dull as well. Yeah. So that there, was, there wasn't that sense of dynamism that you get at a convention where panels are very cleverly designed to get interesting people together who you yeah. don't talk to. There's a lot of work to go into that. Yes, there um, is. And, uh, but but I, I did not hear very many reports of very mind-blowing panels. Usually, at a convention, you hear one or two, you hear a bunch of people talking about a panel, and it's always one that you didn't attend, which just changes the tone of the convention and yeah. makes everybody rethink the whole field. I didn't hear any of that. I no, heard I a lot. Of this, uh, so it probably was kind of a dull convention. I will look at Cheryl's blog, which I've not looked at yet, because I have an enormous respect for Cheryl's. Uh, journalistic balance and uh, and professionalism in, in reporting these things, um, and it is something that ought to be taken into account by 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 the World Fantasy Board and by future World Fantasy organizers, I believe. I, th- I think so too. I mean, it doesn't undermine my faith or enjoyment, sort of faith in and enjoyment of World Fantasy. I w- I will not be in Washington next year, as you know, Gary, but that's only because of financial reasons. I'm going to be in London instead, but I will be at Saratoga Springs in 2015. And we'll look very warmly on future, you know, you know, conventions beyond that, because you know, World Fantasy is my preferred convention, and I, I enjoy it a great deal. Uh-huh. But I am concerned, and if I were to see people being offered more than one panel again, that would make me more concerned. I find myself moving more and more towards the panel parity kind of position. It's not been something that I've been entirely sold on up until now, but I'm getting there now, I think, that I can see the logic oh. in it, or and so some version think, of it. Well, I think there's a personal, I mean, it, it was interesting that um, uh, Paul Cornell, who has pioneered the idea, has never claimed that this is a position that he wants to impose on others. It's yeah. a position which he's taken. Uh, he's very open about it. He's, 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 he's not uh, scolding about the fact that other people might not, but, but he simply won't be on. And the more people that take that position, the better, in a sense, because panel parity isn't that hard to do um, in, in, in various ways. I think the thing to come away with this is that uh, World Fantasy, as you mentioned, is reorganized every year, as is Worldcon, uh, unlike uh, some conventions that appear in the same venue with essentially the same organizers every year, like ReaderCon here in the yeah, States yeah. or ICFA. Um, if you get mad at ICFA or it does something wrong, you can go to the people who yeah. organize it and say, you, you messed up. Yeah. It doesn't do any good to go to next year. It does does some good, but by and large, next year's World Fantasy and the World Fantasy after that will each have a different set of organizers. All we can do is hope that they learn from the mistakes of past World Fantasies. Um, but in a sense, boycotting world fantasy because of a bad experience 
is boycotting a convention organized by a completely different group of people you haven't met. Well, there is that, but there is one point, and your points of discussion really made me think about this. Um, I think there is a need for a clearer, and maybe I'm just not aware of how it happens, a, a greater sense of accountability. I think people I think now expect more accountability from convention organizers and runners, and I think that this separation between the board and the convention committee is a little bit less sustainable now. I think if you're going to authorize a group to run you know, your convention for you, then you have to be willing to take responsibility for that convention as well. I don't think it's okay to just say, well, so-and-so, you know, like these, these nice people in Washington, I think it's Michael Walsh and crew, I, I'm going to, you know, and Michael's, Mike's a real professional, is terrific, and will run a great event in Washington. I know he will. Uh, but you know, I don't think it's enough to say that Mike Walsh is responsible. I think the Royal Fantasy Board is still responsible. Whoever's running in Saratoga Springs, uh, and I think it's the same team who ran it in 2007, who ran a brilliant convention, and who I'm sure will run another brilliant convention. Um, I think they need to sort of be, be clear on this stuff as well, that you know we expect now, you know, a clearer approach to harassment of conventions and a clearer approach to uh, communications and accessibility and all these other sorts of issues. Uh, and if, if you don't, then it's going to look, it look on, fairly or unfairly, it looks worse for the, for the convention and for, for well, the board. I think that's true. And I think that uh, the world fantasy does have the advantage of having a board, sort of supervising board, in the way that world science fiction really doesn't. And yet world science fiction is arguably far more accountable. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh-huh. It means uh -huh. basically... See, if, world, if, as I suspect it is, world science, world science fiction is more accountable than world fantasy, then the difference is because world fantasy is choosing not to be more accountable because world science fiction has found a way to be accountable. Um, and I think world science fiction has more and more learned that in order to gain a bid, you have to include various elements of accountability in your, in your proposal, I think. Well, look, I love World Fantasy, and I hope it, it works out, and I'm happy to t discuss it with anybody who wants to and everything else about moving it forward. I am optimistic about London and Worldcon. I had a brief, brief, brief conversation with several of the people who are involved in programming that event. had a brief chat with Neil Harrison and with Nick Clark and with Farah Mendelssohn, and I'm confident that they will come up with a remarkable program. And I am more than happy to be a part of that program if they want me to be, and I hope you will be as well. I'm on the mailing list, or I'm on the discussion board or something. For the, yeah. for the, for the, and I we will look and see what happens, you know. Shamefully uh, lax. And, and, but, uh, the, and the, the thing is, mm -hmm. well, the people you've talked about, uh, Nick and Neil and, and, and Farah, have always been very good at programming a convention to the strengths of the participants. In other yeah. words, you create a good panel by putting good people together. The topic is in some ways less important than the people you put Then they let us on as well, which is nice. And they may let us on. For, they may let us on one or two, which would be really nice. I think that's all they should let anybody on. I think it gets overused. I mean, I, I don't know that you need an actual number. I mean, World Fantasy has always had a number. You know, like they limit it physically to a certain number of people. And that's fine. I've got no problem with that. But I think getting one person to do eight items I think is probably more than is necessary you and I do it I mean let's face it you and I are going to do the best of the year panel next year Gary aren't we probably and it'll be August we won't know because we never know and maybe we'll do another panel maybe we'll offer maybe world world people maybe we'll offer to do a live podcast I don't know would we do a live podcast well not guaranteeing how live it would be but it could be it could be present we've talked about doing these things and have never actually done one i don't think we've done a live podcast anywhere in the world have we uh not not a live podcast with an audience we've had live podcasts from hotel rooms obviously that's not a live podcast that's just recording in pri private so yeah li live on stagey would you do it Sometime? i'd do it if, let's ask if, uh, if someone was dumb enough to let us <laughs> Oh, an hour and a half of rambling tedium brought to you by people who you'd like to avoid. That'd be perfect. I'm sure that the uh, Lancan committee is just looking for... I know, even, even now. Can't you hear us just making it even more attractive? They'll be going, oh, God, it's those tedious Cood Street people. Um, but look, anyway, Lancan should be great. Washington should be great. It'll be fun. Yeah, it'll, it'll all be fun. And, and uh, one of our old friends, John Clute, is a guest of honor at... Uh, Lon Khan, and mm -hmm. we're certainly talking to him before, if not during that. Yes, we will indeed. Anyway, 
I think, Gary, that brings us towards this, the end of this particular lengthy podcast, number 167, I think. Holy cow. 200. We're closing in on 200. We, well, we, I would think, but possibly, actually, I, I, look, fill in, Gary, while I lift up my, 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 pot, my uh, uh, what do you call it, my keyboard, because I've tried to keep it out of, you know, sort of the awareness of our audience. I think we might be around episode 200 at LunCon. That would be cool. Okay. 200th podcast. That would be something to do live. Now, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it's going to be somewhere around there. Because you're to, uh, yeah, I think it's about right. Somewhere around then. We could just Let's skip see. a few episodes. If, if we're off, we could skip a few episodes and make it so. Or we could just call it number 200 for the heck of it. We could do that. Nobody knows. Who's counting besides us? Well, I keep yeah. I started putting numbers on them, but people like numbers on them, Gary. They do. Didn't you know that? I I, I it's it's impressive to say that you've done 167 podcasts. I gather that that's 167 hours of blathering. I mean, my God, this is. I know, I know. I mean, for their lives still ahead, pity them. I mean, I know there are there are friends of the podcast out there who listen to the podcast, and one or two. I'm talking about you, Cat Sparks, friends of the podcast, who might even have listened to them more than once I know doesn't that just begin to do your head in no um, one is required to listen to more than one okay according to my if, if we don't take any time off as we're talking about over Christmas the 5th uh-huh. of July would be episode 200 so if we take our four weeks off we'd be just about right I think so maybe we should, aim, we should aim that okay and so in fact, the, the real reason we're going to take four weeks off over Christmas, everybody, is so that we can make sure that LunCon is our 200th episode, right? That's exactly our plan. That's it. Yes. Oh. Well, on that cheery note, we have rambled enough, dear friend. I will talk to you again next week. And I will talk to you next week. And until then, read carefully. Read carefully. That sounds that bloody ominous, doesn't it? You know, a duck it might get you, right? Okay. Exactly. Until then. Farewell. Oh, uh, they